Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Maria Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, welcome back Pamela Villacundu. Pamela was recently a Bloomberg Public Health Fellow at John Hopkins. She is also the Director of Development for a nonprofit in New York City that focuses on a range of youth justice issues, Bronx Connect. Bronx Connect has helped thousands of young people avoid jail time while equipping them with the tools to avoid future crime. Pamela is Mexican-American and currently she is raising twins with her husband in Miami, Florida. She continues to work remotely for Bronx Connect. Welcome back also, Suzette Simon. Suzette is the founder of New York Laughs, a New York-based nonprofit that produces free comedy events in public spaces to inspire audiences. Suzette was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer in January of 2020. The Manhattan-based producer is now using laughter in her battle with the disease to raise awareness of the impact of breast cancer. Suzette recently launched her awareness initiative. It's called hashtag strong black boobs as a place to go for the intersection of her own breast cancer journey, information, comedy, self-esteem boosting, and support for communities of color. Yes, it's a very powerful episode that will save lives. And I do really ask you to share it because the information in here, while we know this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, all of it will help you in every way for your health. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. That's important. Make sure you turn on the auto download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast and Twitter is friendslikeustin. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip. Donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. And now as a golden friend on Patreon, you have access to watching our recordings live. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. They're all available. Just go to my website marinafranklin.com Weekly on my YouTube channel, I go live with my assistant Evelyn Frick and my wacky friend Dave Jeskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave us reviews. And we have surprise guest friends from the podcast who stop by. And sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows with friends like us. It'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still if you want to. Get the new booster. I got it. Mm-hmm. And Black Lives Matter. So I have Suzette Simon, who is um, one of my sisters in partner in comedy and sister of breast cancer, survivor, surviving. I prefer to call it surviving than survivor because we don't want to leave out the ones who haven't, you know, that doesn't mean that they haven't. So welcome, Suzette. She also makes it fun. (laughs) Boobs up, ladies. It's October. Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Whoa, perfect because my boobs ghosted me. So perfect timing. (laughs) 
<laughs> she that enthusiasm. I love her. I love her. She was also featured on, I believe it was New York One. I saw them doing a story on you, Suzette. Is, was it New York One? Yeah, yeah, it was New York One because we, um, I actually won a grant from the New York Foundation of the Arts to do um, a show on breast cancer. And I actually got Jenny uh, 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 Saldana and... Um, uh, Ophira Eisenberg to join me. And, yes. and the show was called, it was called Boobies, A Night on Second Base. I heard, I heard it was amazing. <laughs> Ophira told me about it. She said it was an amazing experience. Can you talk a little bit more about it? Like what it was like? Of course, yeah. I mean, it was, it's wonderful to be able to, uh, to take the, the booby journey, the cancer journey into another realm when and talk about it in um, a way that I think that people will uh, listen because the thing is like, we don't like to talk about cancer, but we love to laugh. So, um, so yeah, so it's another way to be able to, um, to connect to people and to spread awareness. And the thing is like, though, when you do these shows, though, you always have to give a warning because it's like, you know, like uh, some people, you know, may not like be into like breast cancer. They may be like into sarcomas and melanomas or whatever, but I'm like, this is an all titty set. So you, so I'm warning you, you know, if you don't like titties then you better leave, get your money back. <laughs> well, that was what was, you see how positive she is, Pamela. She's just great. Like New York one was really the way they showcased you. You brought a lot of um, joy to what is for most women, a very difficult time. And I really, I thank you for that. It inspired me watching you because I was like, oh my God. And then we're going to go into some more, but we also have Pamela Villacundu, who is here, who is also, it's been way too long, Pamela. Like I met Pamela, she approached me at the Comedy Cellar. She was like, or did you approach me at the Comedy Cellar? You emailed me, you were like, I would love to have you do this show I did it all. I approached you and then I followed up and... (laughs) Yeah. And we've been friends ever since. And she's just the sweetest person in the world. And she's so involved in so many things. I mean, she's helping. You know, well, I'll let you tell it. Okay, Thanks. cool. So I work uh, for a wonderful organization. It's known as Bronx Connect. Although now we also have Philly Connect and Staten Island Connect and Manhattan Connect. It's, in, it's primarily Harlem, Upper Manhattan but it's called Manhattan Connect. And we work with young people. Uh, We have a range of programs and initiatives, both direct service. So we work directly with young people who have committed crimes, um, mostly serious misdemeanors and felonies. And so instead of going to jail, judges agree to send them to our community-based program where we connect families and and young people to the resources they need. Uh, We also have some anti-violence initiatives where we where we employ credible messengers and uplift their leadership to help work with um, certain neighborhoods in the Bronx. Yeah, the, just the Bronx right now um, that have a lot of gang violence. And so they identify the young people that are most likely to pick up a gun or to be victims of gun violence. And they work with them to try to just get them to do other things. Um, mm, and then we also- That's got to be the hardest job right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's bad. You know, I think COVID definitely had some long term impacts on our young people. And we're still kind of seeing that um, COVID disproportionately affected black and brown folks in New York, but really across the country. And so um, and, and I mean, it, it continues to right because there's just a lot of um, disproportionate. Uh, healthcare and um, just general lack of resources, but we're there. And, you know, Bronx Connect really was a, the community's response to the incarceration that started in the nineties. And so we've been 
working on this for many years. I didn't join. I joined about five years ago, but um, Reverend Wendy, who has been on the show, is our executive director and she's our fearless leader. She's been driving this forward for over two decades. And it's wonderful that we're getting more funding. We're, you know, we're expanding. We opened our Philly office a couple years ago. And now we also have some advocacy initiatives around changing the actual laws to, to help protect young people from the justice system. So that's a little bit about what I do with my career. It must be very challenging now since you have sort of a pushback in New York City from conservatives who claim that I I watch Bloomberg Channel all the time because I'm investing in stocks now. That's a whole other story. But I see these horrible ads now about the left and they're um, weaponizing the word woke as this thing. They're, They're vilifying people who... The woke left wants to let these, and then they show this like all of the violence that's gone on and they show this like collage of all the violence. Like, how do you, how do you get your message across when you have people who are really trying to stoke the fire of fear? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a great question and one that we're constantly trying to answer. I don't know if I have the answer uh, because it's, it's powerful, right? The, the, it's almost like, when Hillary Clinton said that awful thing, um, the super predator thing, it's the same kind of imagery, the same kind of like myth that is popping back up. And a lot of shit has happened in the last few years that has led communities to really suffer. And so to me, it's very clear that that's the key driver in, in what's going on. And none of the data actually points to, you know, the, the laws that were passed that were, you know, quote unquote, liberal or um, soft on crime. And I'm using air quotes if anyone can't. Um, see me. But, um, it's really easy to paint this narrative that those that, that those laws have caused a spike in crime. And part of what's happening is that when you pass a law, it doesn't always get implemented in the way that it's that it was written or that it's that it should you know work. So, for example, some of what we are seeing is, and it's all anecdotal, right? It's kind of hard to capture this in in like a very data-driven or quantitative way. But what we're seeing is certain judges, right, that are probably pretty conservative, they hate the laws that were passed at the state level around bail and speedy trial and not holding people hostage in jail because they can't afford bail, is that they are letting people go that probably really shouldn't be let go. You know, maybe people that have committed violent crimes and those people perhaps could hurt more people. And according to the law that was passed, they should probably be in jail. However, these lawyers are taking the law and twisting it and letting these people go. And then they go off and commit a crime. And then people are able to point their finger and say, see, these these laws are causing all of this havoc. And so really, yeah, that's what we're seeing. At, I, at I the had ground a feeling level. that was happening. Yeah. Wow. You know, because I, I I had a feeling like the police were doing that as well. Like they they turned a blind eye. I felt like they did that in Chicago. Where they were like, you know, it's kind of like that scene in The Godfather. We'll let them kill themselves. You know, it was like with the fireworks. I don't know if you all remember when the pandemic kind of started. It was at the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, the fireworks were going until like 3 or 4 a.m. I lived in Washington Heights at the time. It was insane. And the cops were not doing anything. I had a total conspiracy theory that the cops were actually fueling and probably bringing in. A lot of people said that. Yeah. And I mean, to this day, I'm like, how are all these people getting these really professional fireworks? I mean, all at once, it just seemed like, where are they getting this stuff from? It was, it was odd. And to me, there was no clear, like 
rhyme or reason behind it, which is what led me to think, oh, it must be a conspiracy, you know, like it must be the cops doing this, but we'll never know. Yeah, there, we'll never know because there's no accountability ever when it comes to the police. And then these judges now, from what you're saying, like that makes complete sense to me. Because even Pamela, even I was at a point where I was like, we need a police. Yes, oh my God, yes. where are they? Yeah, my they sister's helping in New York us. and it's scary. Yeah, my sister, you know, she's like, I don't like to drive to get on the subway late at night anymore. Um, or if I do, I like I cover up because, you know, she wears shirts that are very hot and she likes to be sexy. So she's like, I got to, you know, I got to bring my sweatshirt because after 10 p.m., you know, it gets kind of scary. I mean, that that's probably been the case forever. But I think it's I mean, I would love to hear from you all what it's like because I don't live there anymore. Well, Suzette, I'll let you go. How is it for you? Do you feel like, because I, I did see like a comedian do a, a joke about how New York isn't that dangerous. And I totally disagreed with that. <laughs> and I was like, but you know, she was funny, but inaccurate. What, how do you feel? Uh, I feel, um, I, I mean, I, I just feel like you always, I think it doesn't matter. I just, don't, I don't feel like anything has changed. I feel like it's the same level of like, uh, you, you have to be on the same level of alert. You know what I mean? It's always sort of like orange, you know, when it comes to New York City, it doesn't matter. Like it's not, I don't think anything has changed. It's just, uh, I think that there's more coverage of it in the media, but I just think that I've always like on orange level. I mean, you know, that high, high level of alert when it comes to New York City. But um, but I think it's the same in any city, you know, any major city. I'm always, you know, like trying to see, you know, people putting stuff in my drinks, if, you know, like, I feel this. Uh, I don't feel anything different than I did before. Really? Yeah. See, I feel so. I, maybe it's because I've gotten older, and uh, people have called me a black Karen lately, which is <laughs> you know that's funny. But I have noticed, like specifically in Harlem, there is because they have all of the drug um, rehab centers, and I forget what they call them. You could help me with that, Pamela, if you know what they. They're they're. They're helping them to not overdose, but I, I don't know. I Safe injection sites, but do they I, have those in New York City yet? Yes, yes, yeah. Um, I believe they're starting to. And then so a lot of the centers they put in Harlem for a population that's not in Harlem. So like the addiction problem is statewide. It's all of New York. It's not just Harlem but they put them mostly in Harlem. And so they are, these are neighborhoods where I used to be able to walk and go to the grocery store without dealing with a lot of stuff. And listen, I don't have a problem helping. I just feel like everyone needs to do their share in New York City, not mm -hmm. just Harlem. Yes. So if it was like equal, if it was like, you know, lower, like the village is a mess. So uh, the village right now, if you walk during the day... I, the things I've seen, I've seen crazy stuff before, but it's extra now. It's a lot. So there's that. There's also like a mental illness component that I'm seeing on the street more now than I've ever seen before. There's a homeless situation in New York that I'm seeing now because people don't want to be in the shelters, understandably so, that I've never seen before. And yeah, I look around. I have to pay attention when I'm taking the subway. A lot of times you're, you, I mean, a kid was just shot on the platform. The the gun situation where they've, uh, they've reversed what was protecting New York as far as like carrying guns <laughs> legally, you know, so it's, you know, these are things, I am that older woman who watches the news too much. 
Okay, so you are Suzette, you are right about that. They are reporting it on a higher level, and if you watch it, you will feel like you're walking through like a war zone day to day. But I do feel like, in a sense, you my my senses are up, um, and I am terrified of young kids, Pamela. I'm not gonna lie. I see group of young kids, and I don't know if they're what they're doing. The number of gun violence with the youth in New York City is devastating and sad. And what is Bronx Connect? What are their new, I guess, options or what what are they adding to the the already platform that you have? Yeah, that's that's the right way of saying it. (laughs) Mental health is huge. Um, so we have, we have some therapeutics, community therapeutics. We have a van that, um, we can directly go to a site. Like if there's a shooting, right. And the mom of the victim is struggling, we can bring therapy right to her. But in, on the prevention side, honestly, I think it is, it's, it's a multivariate equation. And I think that's the whole problem with this media thing. It's, it's so easy to say, oh, it was that law that was passed. But really, if anything, it's. It's just showing that there's just underlying factors that are impacting kids, right? And you mentioned the shelter thing, right? So imagine you're a kid and you're growing up in these communities. That's environmental racism because why are they concentrating these centers, right, in Harlem? Um, And it's not just the centers you're talking about, but it's also factories. And why do kids in the Bronx have higher rates of asthma? Um, You're literally growing up in these conditions that are not favorable for thriving, you know, you're far away from employment centers. There's not a lot employment is honest, honestly huge too. I think a huge focus for us is employment, even if it's internships, um, employment readiness. We're equipping young people with CDLs so that they can do construction if they're interested. No, wait, CDL, CDLs is um, commercial driving's license. So that's actually a little more expensive, but that's Wendy's dream is to also be able to get kids CDLs. Um, but we do get them OSHA and all the training to do construction. And just really, you need an alternative. You can't say to a kid, drop the gun. You know, you're making, you're making good money being on the street. You're supporting potentially your family. Potentially you're also living out the expectation because, so I don't know if I told you the story last time I was on here, but we have a young person. He's a young adult now. He's a fellow twin parent and um, he's incredible. He grew up in a family of gang involvement, like his father, his his um, brother, everybody, right? They, I think they were in prison when he was a teenager. And so he grew up in this life and we have a harm reduction approach. So when you join Bronx Connect, we don't tell you, you have to just go clean because that's completely unreasonable, right? To expect someone to just leave behind the life that they've been living their entire life, all they know is just not going to happen. So he, he was successful in our program. We ended up employing him after he completed the program. And then he ended up getting in some sort of argument with someone in the neighborhood and got shot in the eye. He almost did lose his eye. Um, But we continue to support him through that. And he ended up doing, getting a few credits of college. Now he's back in New York working with us. And you need kind of a very long-term intervention for these young people. It's not just, you know, six months of programming and then we're out. Because the problems are so deep and it's so difficult to get out of this lifestyle for a lot of the young people. And so you really need, and obviously who's doing these programs is really important, right? All of our staff is brown or black. I don't, 
I think we had one white person. I think she left. I mean, that's not something that, you know, we would love more for more white people to join us. It's not like we're, but we really want Bronx Connect to represent the community and the young people have to see themselves in, in their, in the staff member that's going to be supporting them. And so we have a lot of staff that we even have leadership that has justice involvement. Um, Like the leadership of our organization, some of them have had involvement in the justice system or family that's been, you know, in the system. And I think that it requires that kind of perspective because otherwise I think it's easy to give up and say, oh, you know, after six months of programming, you're still living that street life. Then we're going to give up and you're going to go to jail. But that's just not the way people work. Um, you need a, a long-term intervention. And so the great thing about New York City is that even though we're experiencing, I think, at a s- symptom level, more violence, um, mm-hmm. we have put a lot of funding into these programs, but it's such a deep-rooted, long-term structural issue that's been going on for decades. Like, we're not going to fix this, you know, even in five years. Like, and and I don't think, you know, personally that, we should focus on, like, I don't just focus on the negative stuff because there's so many positive stories too. And so many kids that are changing their lives and no one's talking about that. So, you know, I think we just need to continue to fund those, those alternatives that work. We've done studies and, you know, Bronx Connect really does work. It helps people to avoid crime and it helps the community. There's just not enough of it, right? Like we can only serve a certain amount of kids a year, but maybe someday we'll be able to scale more and support more kids. And there's obviously other organizations as well that are doing the good work, but um, I'm hopeful. I think you said such an, yes, hopeful. I think you brought up such a good point is we don't hear those stories enough. The media doesn't push those stories forward. So you can understand why it's so easy for people to end up voting the way they do because they don't. The media is responsible for not under like the disinformation that's out there. Right. On all levels. Like I've, Paul, I'm, I just, it's so easy to be like, oh, I'm sure if I'm liberal, like it's all a mess. Like our, unfortunately, I think obviously there's for me a party that is less evil, but um, it's just so short. Like this, the time span is so short that it's difficult, I think, for leaders to make a difference when election cycles, like our system is also built, I think, around like band-aids and, you know, like the whole de Blasio thing where I think all the mental health funding didn't make it to the communities. Um, there's just no real incentive, I think, because you're not going to see the result in an election cycle. So I think it's unfortunately, you know, that's, but at the same time, if you do fund those programs, like there's people doing the work that are gaining knowledge. And so like, for example, um, we were able to go into Philly because a family foundation based out of Wisconsin was like, Hey, you guys are doing great work. Let's fund a pilot program in Philadelphia, which could really use some alternatives for young people that are getting mixed up in the system. And so we started meeting with local stakeholders there and there was indeed a need. So we are partnering with the district attorney's office to fully divert young people. So they're not even entering the system. That's even better, right? Um, Because they're just not even coming into contact. And it's proven that once you come into contact, you're more likely to continue your involvement. So um, there's, there's people out there that are noticing and that are funding the right things. So I appreciate being on this platform to like talk about this stuff because it's I like like I said I am very hopeful. Yeah, I mean I, I had a question. I, I just I was wondering sort of like what is the relationship between the police and your organization? It's like how you know everyone everyone was talking about defund the police, but you know of course the reason was to be able to just you know allocate resources differently. 
uh, you know, so that the police aren't involved in everything. But how does your organization work with with, you know, institutional uh, things that are, you know, inst- institutional organizations, the, the police, the district attorney, like how do you divert and, and you know, um, use your resources to be able to help kids before they get into the system? Like, how do you partner with these these organizations? That's such a good question, Suzette. So in New York, we, I don't want to say we partner with the police because a lot of, you know, I mean, but we do. Um, but unfortunately, it is tough because the people, even the people that work at Bronx Connect have trauma, right, from police interactions and just their life experience. And so um, there's just a lot of considerations. And that's the thing. It's really hard work because because of that trauma. Um, but what we do is we um, do shooting responses. And I think sometimes the police is involved in those shooting responses. So if there's a shooting we go out into the community, we share resources, mental health resources. We just raise awareness that we, you know, don't support gun violence. Um, and then we also attend, um, I believe they're quarterly. We, we try to attend at least quarterly meetings um, that I think it's like the community relations officer usually holds with within like a precinct. Uh, so we work with the police through that. And I mean, sometimes the police will just call us and like, they don't, know, they don't have the resources. That's that, to your point. Like, they don't have the resources to deal with the shit. They don't know how to talk to a young person that is agitated, that is angry, that is lashing out, that has gone through some really difficult stuff in their lives for their age. And our staff actually know how to talk to that person. And so sometimes the police will call us and we'll, we'll be the ones that go and um, get that young person and try to get them out of the community and, you know, try to cool down so they don't go off and, you know, end up ruining their lives and potentially the lives of other community members. Um, And then in Philly, our relationship with the district attorneys has been incredible because I think the DA, Larry Krasner, has been very innovative in Philly. And uh, I think we, so we started in Philly in 2020 and the, his staff just welcomed us. I mean, they're already, they were already doing some other programming around, you know, actually helping young people in a long-term way. And so we came in and it was just like a perfect fit because they didn't have a program for specifically young people that committed serious misdemeanors and some, I think some felonies we do in Philly too. Uh, Because I mean, those are, that is the hardest situation, I think, because those crimes are indicative of some deep rooted issues that need to be worked through. Um, And you can't change the conditions but, you know, we try through our advocacy work. Now we're trying to do, you know, stuff around pa- passing policies and stuff in New York State. But yeah, those relationships are crucial. And most of our funding in New York City comes from the city, from the mayor's office of criminal justice. Yeah, mostly the mayor's office of criminal justice. They have been, I mean, for all the bad rap that de Blasio got, <laughs> he funded some mm-hmm. cool stuff. Um, and oh, I'm not oh, okay. What did, him, what did he fund? What did he, yeah, because he was, oh. Yeah, there, I, I will say the, the, for me, I mean, I can only talk to what I know, right? And I don't know about everything. I don't know about affordable housing. I don't know about even mental health. My, you know, my, my knowledge is limited, but specifically around gun violence, he really supported community-driven efforts like Bronx Connect um, and other, a bunch of other organizations that are in Brooklyn and Queens doing really good work. Um, and like I said, you know, we're not necessarily seeing it on the media and some of it is going to take decades probably to really 
right. address because it's just so deep rooted and it's decades of neglect. So do you think, God, this is such a great conversation. I mean, it's so needed right now just for people to understand really what's going on. Because I've been thinking that this takes time and people don't have the patience. And the way I see Republicans, and um, they are evil, (laughs) is I see them as really quick fixes for election only purposes. And like, like the one thing I saw like Obama do, and I know some people have a lot of problems with Obama still, but um, he had a longer, long plan. It always seemed like he was doing things patiently. Whereas I see Republicans just, they fuel fear. But I saw something on Fox News recently where a white woman said, there's nowhere to hide anymore. And I was like, that is where Democrats should zone in on. Because that's exactly right. If you don't fix the problem somewhere else, it's going to be your problem eventually. And Democrats need to really zone in on that exact point for those people on the right who don't get it. I want to ask you, what do you think Mayor Adams is doing? We'll try to spit it in a positive way. What what is he doing right so far? Anything? (laughs) I would love to hear you all's take first. I feel like I've talked a okay. lot because you live there. Suzette like go. you're there. Uh, like I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Suzette? Uh, he's got a lot of swag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He seems yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, he's, I, you know, um, uh, I just, um, I think being the mayor of New York is never going to be easy. And um, I, you know, it's, it's really hard to say at this point what he's doing. I just feel like, um, um, uh, I think one of the things that I, I do like about him is I think that he does, when he is criticized, he does try to address the problem. I don't know if he's doing it correctly, but I think that he does any sort of criticism. He tries to tackle it immediately. So, um, so I like the fact that he's on top of things. Um, I don't think that, you know, I just think that I'm still trying to give him time to get things right. Yeah, I agree with that too. Like, I, I think he, he does need time to get things right. And I do feel like there's forces out there that is going to always work against any black leader, um, no matter what. Um, and so I, even though I, I'm not currently a fan, I do feel like there, there's definitely forces that always want to make a black leader's job that much more difficult, even if he was formally attached to the police. Um, I don't know. It, it does seem like he he profiles as someone who's in the community. I saw him in the I've met him before um, with the guy who used to support this podcast at a Christmas party before he became mayor. And I just remember he made sure he said hi to everybody. And I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know if that means he just wants to, wanted my vote. <laughs> so he made sure he had eye contact with me or he really meant, I remember the, the speech was good that day in front of the Christmas tree. It was a nice speech. He was a vegan. I mean, he, he's, he sets, he, he sets up right. He comes, he, I saw him in Harlem too recently. 
And, you know, I felt like such a hypocrite because I was like, hey, because <laughs> I'm so I have so much anger towards him, actually. But I was like, I saw him and I felt <laughs> like I was I, I was like, wait a minute, Marita, you have so many issues with him right now. And you just like forgot all that. And it was like you just saw a cele- it's kind of like people in an audience watching Dave Chappelle who have issues with what Dave Chappelle does. But the moment he hits the stage, they're like, oh, my God, it's Dave Chappelle. You know, it was the same sort of thing. So that's sort of celebrityism I worry about with him that I, I worry. I wish he would focus more on the get down and dirty in the work. Get it, you know, but it, it's going to take time. So. I mean, I think that he's very reactionary. I mean, I, I know that like people were complaining about homelessness. And so then he got in and he start, started to just knock down, you know, areas where people were and, you know, throw their stuff away. And then try to he tried to set up a, a system of homeless, like a homeless, uh, um, like. Um, um, yeah, he knocked down where they live. <laughs> yeah, I know. But he set up, what was it like? What's that? Like a homeless youth hostel? Not really a shelter, but a homeless youth hostel. So, um, so I think he's very reactionary, but I, I think long-term, like you said, like with Obama, like sort of a long-term plan, he hasn't gotten there yet, but I feel like, uh, I, I think it's something within his mind, but I just, uh, like, it's just not really sort of executed very well, but he's very reactionary. He's very, anything happens, he's right in the community. He's knocking this down. He's, you know, he's, you know, every day you can sort of hear and see that he's somewhere, but, um, but he's not executing well right now, I think. That's the, you know, I think the issue that I have with him, that the execution isn't great, but it's very grand. Like his, he's there and he's, you know, very superhero-ish. Like he's there. Very superhero-ish. And that attachment to the police department needs to better. It, it, I believe we do need to have these conversations with our precinct so that they can hear us. But I don't know. I don't know what his plan is. To be honest, I don't, I don't, maybe I haven't done my research, but I'm not sure what it is exactly. He put cameras in the, in the subway. I was like, make sure they're on. <laughs> right. You know, so what do you feel? Tell us. I, so I mostly, I mostly know some of the stuff related to criminal justice um, because that's just the area that I'm in. I do. So I think recently he said some remarks, I think end of August about, so they asked him about close Rikers and because Bronx Connect has been very um, supportive of close Rikers and has been advocating. And by the way, when we say close Rikers, we're not just closing Rikers, right? We are also proposing a borough-based system that um, allows people to be close to their lawyers and close to their family members and close to the services that they're going to need because those people are going to, a lot of them are going to come up back out into society and they need to start establishing those relationships with employment partners, mental health professionals, et cetera. And so there is already a a roadmap that has been outlined by the commission, um, by a commission that met around Rikers and um, how we can reinvest all of those resources in a way that will actually help communities. And so um, I think he basically said he's not sure how he's that's going to happen by, I believe, 2027 was the original date that um, de Blasio had. Um, he passed, I don't know if he passed a law or basically the city is supposed to close Rikers by a certain date. And so he seemed kind of iffy about how do we get there. And so for me, it's just like, 
yes, we're seeing all these issues now and people are all worried about the bail stuff, but like half of the people on Rikers have mental health issues. And I don't think a corrections officer is equipped. Like I'm not even knocking on corrections officers. I'm just saying the system does not equip them to deal with these mental health issues. We're like doing a disservice to them. It's very traumatic. I, I have friends that are former corrections officer that I met through my work. Like it's hell for everybody, not just the people that are detained there. So there needs to be a total culture shift and we need to reallocate resources because while the population has gone down of people incarcerated on Rikers over time and the budget for the Department of Corrections has gone up and they have a huge union that is, you know, very effective, very powerful. And, you know, talk about politics. They probably love Mayor Adams, right? And so it's hard to be a mayor, right? I think it's hard to be a mayor as a black man. And I cannot understate that enough. Like I I was listening to, I don't know if you know, Christina Greer. She was, um, yeah, she's been on the show several yes, times. Okay. That's what I thought. Um, mm-hmm. you know, she's a good friend. Like I'm Mexican and there's no monolith of like Latin America, you know, it's, or even Mexico. I feel like it can be so misconstrued what it means to be Mexican. People look at me, they're like, Oh, you're Mexican. Like, you know? And so I just, I think he is actually responding or I think society maybe reacted or responded to very serious issues in the best way that it knows how, you know, and I think he does bring a lot of, a lot to the table. I think he's obviously very smart. Um, but Bronx Connect is working with our partners to really push him on this issue and be like, Hey, no, we can't close Rikers and reinvest in our communities. And there is a plan for that. And we should stick to it because we've been doing this for decades. We've been doing business as usual for decades and it's not, it's not working. So we got to try something different and we got to really buckle down and stay the course like for at least a decade. And if, you know, if it still doesn't work, then let's have a conversation, but like, let's close Rikers. It's a terrible place. It's traumatizing our, our communities. Um, it just, it needs to go. Um, and so I would love to see him have more of, a commitment to that because there's already a roadmap. It's not like pie in the sky, you know, situation. These borough-based jails will have the the people that are detained in the borough-based jails, which is how we close Rikers, right? The Bronx is going to have um, a borough-based facility. Brooklyn's going to have a borough-based facility. Um, they're going to be closer to the services they need. Like it just makes so much sense. I think that that's how we actually tackle all the issues that we talked about, like they need mental health services. And that's just like, when I say half of the people on Rikers have mental health issues, that's just the ones that are diagnosed, right? We know that most kids in the juvenile justice system also have learning disabilities and most of them don't even get diagnosed. So let's like start addressing the actual problem and not incarcerating people for disabilities or, you know, mental health issues. I think just our, our justice system is, is just grown so big because it has become the catch-all for all our issues for all of the crime and, you know, that are actually manifestations of much deeper issues that if we don't address, we're just going to keep seeing the same thing over and over again. Now I'm going to ask you one more question, then we're going to get into some other topics. How can the community, because for me, I've gotten a little more involved in in Harlem. I, I Every Monday I attend this task force and, you know, I, I love using the word catalyst lately because it sounds good. The catalyst for that was <laughs> um, <laughs> the bar underneath my uh, building was loud and they didn't care about the residents that lived above. And I and I 
I was trying to tell the community board, this is a form of displacement. You know, 10,000 people of color have been displaced from Harlem. It is no longer a black neighborhood. Okay. So part of that displacement means that people who live here for a long time, who love their homes, can't really live here and have peace of mind. And sound, although it sounds like a crazy woman who's living alone, who has a cat, who just is bothered, while it sounds like that, it actually has a lot more issues that are tagged onto it, like crime, like um, businesses taking advantage of neighborhoods, white-owned businesses in Black neighborhoods taking advantage of Black people who live there, who don't think they care about sound, stuff like that. So I attend this task force and I'm starting to realize, and I joined the task force because the community board did not care about the community, does not open themselves, this specific community board, I won't say which one on here, but the specific community board does not represent the community. They listen to us for like all of two seconds, but they, the hierarchy of them and the politics, I started to see the rabbit hole from just a noise complaint of the dysfunction of the politics in Harlem and why all of the brown and black people have been displaced. We, black people, people of color, have more to um, responsibility for that displacement than I ever thought. So how does the community, Pamela, get involved in, let's say, Bronx Connect? How can they help? How can they get their voices heard? How can they get involved? That's a great question. And I think also like uh, that's something that we have tried to build out. So we've built out an advocacy and organizing team. And I'm so excited because we try to make a difference, but you really got to change things at a deeper level in terms of laws and the media and the narrative. And you got to come like, think about it, right? Every time the media comes out and is like, oh, there's another shooting, like, who is out there to be like, okay, no, but there's also this data that, you know, shows that this is not why there's a shooting or, you know, there's, there's this positive story about a young person that's changing their lives. And so, um, so our advocacy and organizing department, we have three, um, people that are now full-time that I hired that I'm just, I used to basically be the advocacy person because we had a great organizer, she left, and then it was just me and we're working on passing a law, the right to remain silent. Uh, bill is what we call it. And basically young people concurrently be interrogated and police read their Miranda rights, which, you know, you have the right to remain silent, but there's science that shows that young people do not fully understand what that statement means. And 90% of young people waive it. And then they talk to the cops. Right. And so what we're trying to do is pass a law to make it so that young people cannot waive that right without speaking to an attorney first, even if it's on the phone. And I think that that for us is so commonsensical. California recently passed a law um, around it. I think Washington also did. And people are starting to take note of it. But I mean, these are kids under 18. Like, you know, I don't want my kid talking to a cop without speaking to a lawyer. I don't want to be talking to a cop without speaking to a lawyer. Right. And so how can we expect kids to know what the heck they're doing? Um, So that is one campaign that is we've been advocating and championing for two years where, and it passed through the assembly last legislative session, but there's a new legislative session that starts in January. And we really hope that this is the year that it passes because it's been slowly gaining more traction. And so it, 
people can reach out and get involved with that. Um, I'll find out our website and I'll sh- I can share the, the the URL so that they can get plugged in. But basically, you can call your legislator and say, hey, you know, I support this bill. Um, and I think it would make a big difference for young people to be able to talk. Because you talk to, you know, people in the community, like they've had these interactions with police. They've they've been detained. And it's like the, the central, the exonerated five. That's like happens to almost everyone. If you go into the Bronx, like that's happened to a lot, especially men. It's happened to a lot of people, you know, obviously not with the same repercussions, but just really negative interactions. And my whole point is also like, if you want the police to have healthy relationships with communities, let's add another party to help mediate so that young people's rights are protected. And that's going to help police have a better relationship with the community too, because there's going to be more trust. And so obviously the police is not a fan of this law. Um, but I always say like, Hey, it's going to help you have better relationships and it might even, you know, help have other indirect positive effects in the community. So that's, um, one thing we're working on. We're also active on the closed Rikers on all of the closed Rikers stuff and just making sure that like, um, Suzette, what you said about reinvesting and actually funding the things that are going to help. So I'll share some info about how people could get involved with that. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. We'll And we'll use it on our social media to post. So definitely share that with some of my, uh, my assistants. Okay, cool. So we can post that along. This is just such a great conversation. It's, it's so interesting too, because Suzette, I don't, I haven't had any interactions with police officers in New York City. And interesting enough, I was on a trip to Vermont this week and with my friend who's Irish and she was speeding and she got pulled over. And it was, it was one of those moments where I was like, I, I just all of a sudden I heard, she goes, Oh, Oh no. Oh no. Oh, Marina. I'm caught. I'm caught. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're speeding. <laughs> so she's pulled over. The panic in my body was different from hers. I, I could tell right away. You know, she spoke to the officer. I heard the officer like giggle. Like, that for me was new. Like he, she, the moment she spoke, I knew right away he could see her as a person that represented someone in his family, possibly his grandmother. He was smiling. The whole interaction was bizarre for me. And I just kind of leaned. I felt like I needed to not be seen in that car so, just so we could get away afterwards. And I thought to myself, I wonder if this interaction would have been the same. I I had a level of nerves that she didn't have. I, I definitely know. Like my, my antenna was way up. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And she didn't understand it. It was like, she was like, she's like, oh, I always get away. I was like, that must be a... a you know, to live life like that and not have that fear of cops and the fact that they don't understand it. Of course they don't. So is that, have you had any interactions with police officers in New York City? Uh, I mean, you know, I've had people yell at me and stuff like that. But the thing is, I have people in my family who are police officers. And so, um, uh, I mean, you know, I, it, it's still, the, I mean, even they are sometimes afraid of other police officers. But the thing is, like, I'm just totally traumatized by white people in general. I mean, I, I go out in society, I live my life, but it is traumatizing. I mean, like, I go to the gym and I got yelled at by a guy 
for using my phone in the gym after I'd gotten happy news from a doctor about my cancer diagnosis. And he said that he was going to go report me to the front desk. And I was like, now that's traumatizing to me. It's like, you know, I mean, like there's a long list of civil rights issues that traumatize me, you know, health disparities, voter manipulation, police, police brutality, criminal injustice. But, um, but, you know, but this guy at the gym takes the cake. He's like number one and like slavery is like number two. So it's like, I live my life like completely traumatized by white people. And I watch those shows like them, you know, and, and the movie, you know, like the movies, you know, the Jordan Peele movies. And it's all true. It's the scary. It's scarier than Halloween because this stuff is true. It's, uh, it's true. It's like people will people have like, you know, taken black people and pull their fingernails. I mean, like it's it's horror stories. It's like who wants to leave your apartment, really? So. Uh, so, yeah. So I'm traumatized by white people. I deal with it. But it's, you know, it's a whole bunch of code switching, code talking, you know, running quickly like ah, at 11 o'clock at night to get home and lock your doors and even you can't even have your doors locked they'll bust in i'm so while you're while you're talking you know what suzette i love your energy always you you're such a good uh you you take these stories and you just your spin on it is so funny and fun i also i want to i want to switch to health and both of you well, all of us, me too, have been dealing with very serious health issues. And, you know, we're talking about advocacy, well, advoca- advocating for yourself. I saw recently, Pamela, you posted something about going in and to the hospital and, and having t- and being nice and realizing that wasn't the thing to do. You had to really get her to do, you know, with needles. But um, Suzette, talk about how much you have to advocate for yourself, even now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you always have to advocate for yourself. It's crazy. It's, um, you know, my mom died 30 years ago of breast cancer and she didn't have health insurance. So like watching that whole process was completely different. I mean, like, you know, she left the hospital with um, one flat side and one very, very long boob. And so like, I don't know what her self-esteem was like. I mean, we really didn't talk about it at that time when I was really young, but, but I mean, like every day, like watching her walk across the kitchen was like, like, it was like watching her do with this long boob was watching her do sort of like perpetual hacky sack. It was like, I have no idea like what kind of like, you know, uh, self-esteem issue she had, but, but because of her, like, and I had insurance, I made sure that when I found out my diagnosis, first of all, I didn't relate with the first doctor that I had. So I had insurance. So I was, I was going for it. I was breaking the bank. You know, I was like, I went to first opinion, second opinion, third opinion, each time flashing my breast. It was like, by the time I was done, it was like, you know, I had flashed like half of New York and half of New York owed me dinner, but it was great. Cause I'm a single New Yorker. So I needed somebody to take a look at these boobs and feel them once. So it was a, it was, you know, many other benefits to this, you know, like friends with benefits, doctors with benefits. It was kind of that kind of situation. But um, but yeah, you totally have to advocate for yourself because um, even now, like even though I have done the, um, you know, I've tried to stay on top of it. Um, you know, I when I was told that I needed to do chemo, one the, my first uh, the first oncologist I talked to was like, well, let me talk to some. Um, some colleagues and come back to you. And she came back to me with a very sort of lighter therapy. And then when I went to see another oncologist, the other oncologist was also like, you know, we can do that therapy, but I suggest something else. And I was like, when he told me the stronger therapy, I was like, I didn't care about hair at that point. It was like, I saw what my mom had gone through. I was like, just throw everything at me. So, so you have to keep it in all, and all the while too, while I'm looking for all these doctors, I'm looking for black, um, 
Black professionals, Black doctors. And that's also was sort of a hard thing to find along the way, you know, like I, you know, I'm, I get, I'm getting all these recommendations and, um, you know, but it's no one of color. And so um, later on, I did find people of color, but I had already kind of assembled my team, but I did go to see them and I, and I heart, I, I love like Dr. Balogun at, um, at Cornell Weill and, and Kathy, um, Kathy Ann at, um, at, um, Kathy Ann Joseph. Kathy Ann Joseph. Yeah. At oh, you didn't tell me you went to yeah, her. Yeah, I went to her. I love her. I love her. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, I love her. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so, but, um, but you always have to like advocate for yourself. And again, and then the side benefits is that you get to show half your breast too, you know, <laughs> but, um, but right now too, I'm not even that happy with the final result because even after all this advocating, um, you know, I had, there's a difference between, I got implants, but before that I had something called, um, expanders and expanders are great because basically you it's kind of like uh you get to sort of decide the size sizing you get filled you get your um it's saline saline solution that's put inside of your breast and so they get filled up on a regular basis to how large you want them to be and they also one side benefit is that they also have magnet um have uh, metal in them so if you're ever losing a post-it note you can always just like put your <laughs> kitchen magnet right here and you'll never like you'll never forget like your grocery list ever again but um, but yeah. So and then the the thing about the the expanders is that they are very high. So basically, you know, I was like I was like the porn star I always wanted to be. You know, it's like they were. You know, my you know bef- my my breast greeted a lot of people before um before I did. It was kind of like hi, and also too they were great. They were great for yoga. It was like great. You know, I was an internal like cobra or something, just sort of always propped up. They were really hard. I I felt like I was like one of those warriors warriors in the three hundred movie. You know, just sort of really breastplated and everything. But the thing is like, they don't tell you is that implants are different than expanders. So, so when I got the implants, I was like, we had no discussion about size. And so I had, I, I had asked the doctor jokingly, I was like, well, what size am I, you know, what are these like team, is it going to be like team double D's or whatever? And he said, well, the nurse said, well, he's going to give you what fits. And I was really happy with the, the um, way the, um, expanders were. So I was, I just thought that that's the way it was going to be. And then when I get into the hospital, you know, they ask you everything, they ask you your name, age, serial number, but they don't ask you what they're taking out of you, but they don't ask you about, well, what are you getting put in? And so when I came out of it, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this shirt's a little loose. <laughs> like, <sighs> like I want a little, I want, you know, I mean, basically it's because of the way that the um, implants are, they're flatter. So you know, essentially, if I have like maybe like, you know, one vanilla wafer too many, I am like, I am like the centerfold for like Job of the Hutt's like sex magazine or something like it's just not it's just not like um, it doesn't keep you for me. It doesn't keep me curvy enough. It's like I have to work hard to stay where it's relative to these boobs now than um, than I would if I had them. I wanted them a lar- little bit larger because I'd have more freedom with like uh, in case my weight fluctuates. So now I'm just working yes. harder. And I mean, it sounds like a vain thing, but it's not a vain thing. It's like, you know, no, it's not my, you know, my, I, I watched my mom, you know, die of cancer. My, my, my father had diabetes. My brother had asthma. So I've always made it, made health a priority and worked hard to make health a priority because I've had, I've had all of these, like, you know, these social, um, like discriminants around me, like, you know, everything that a black person could get in the, you know, in the world, like, each person in my family has had some of it. So I'm um, obesity, whatever. So, so like the way I 
keep myself healthy is really, really important. And that's not a vanity thing. It's about health. And the fact that I got like breast cancer was like completely surprising because I thought I was being healthy and taking care of myself. So, um, and when I found that I did have breast cancer, I apologized to my mom because I was trying to do it also to honor her because, um, yeah, I didn't want, I didn't want to have to deal with, I think that she, her struggle was my warning, you know? So I was trying to take care of myself. So I apologized to her. You know, I did everything. It was like, you know, I, I, um, you know, I ate all my vegetables. I, I did my yearly mammograms. Um, you know, I, you know, made sure my credit scores were high. I just, I, I just did everything <laughs> like, you know, um, but, um, but in the end, it wasn't the mammogram thing. It was um, just monthly breast self-exams. I mean, they keep telling you to do mammograms, which is important. But you also have to love yourselves, ladies. You have to love <clears throat> yourselves. You have to know how to look at your body and know what's normal and what's not normal. And that that is going to really save your life more than anything. And then, and then and as a Black woman, too, advocating for yourself at younger ages because doctors are not going to believe you when you walk in there at 25 and say, I have a lump. They won't because insurers don't pay for mammograms earlier than 40. And yes. and, and then and black people get we get cancer younger. You know, cancer is not our friend. It comes it's, it comes knocking in like, you know, wanting to hang out on a Saturday. It's like it's there. So advocating yes. for yourself is really, really, really important because nobody nobody knows your body like you. And then also, yeah, and, and all of these books and everything, the medicine is all geared toward not toward people of color. It's like. You know, like if you have a certain like uh, problem with your breasts, it may not be in the textbooks. It may not be that your skin is, you know, the textbooks will say your skin needs to be red, but you are black. And so it could be a bluish color. And you're like, well, was that a mole? You know what I mean? Is it or is it like cancer because it's blue and it's not red? So, yeah, you have to go in there like, you know, like you're going to like, yeah, like. And keep going, keep going and and asking questions until you get what you want. And in the end, still, I still didn't, you know, I still lo- I love my doctor, but I think that that's the part of the problem is that when it comes to cancer is like they don't treat you as a regular patient. They treat you as a, like, a, you know, they don't treat you as a, a customer. Like, you know, if I went in there to get the boobs, I could get, you know, I could get the triple Z's I wanted. I, I always dreamed of the triple Z's I dreamed of. But because I'm a cancer patient, you know, it's like I didn't get that discussion about like, well, like, what is it you want? And then when I go back and I try to get try to see if I can still get something larger, that's when I find out that, like, you know, with the radiation that I had, the skin is like kind of ruined and that there's only so much you can do to to get those triple Z's of my dreams. So. Thank you so much for sharing that, you know that whole journey because it's 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 so specific too there's so many things along the way that what you just detailed will help many to prevent you know a lot you know sometimes it's just we're listening when you're diagnosed you're listening with uh trauma ears you're you're too too panicked to listen. And, and so this, I I really recommend all of you who are listening to Suzette's story to really pay attention to what she's saying. Now, according to the CDC, about one in eight women will get breast cancer in their lives. One in eight. That's a new number, by the way. It wasn't always like that. Guthrie uh, Medical Center in this article by Amsterdam News, which is Christina Greer is a part of. That's why I use it. 
is encouraging greater Cortland area. What is the word Cortland? Um, residents to schedule mammogram appointments. Saturday morning slots, get this, have already been booked through the end of the month. And data shows early detection is key to survival, which is important for women of color because we are dying at a disproportionate rate, you know, from early to not being detected early enough. Okay. Stage zero to one has a five-year survival rate of more than 99%. Stage two to three of 41 to 67%. And stage four of only 15%. The mammogram process is quick, only taking... Well, you know, I know I've had my experiences with mammograms. In the beginning, it wasn't as painful. It got more painful after my radiation treatment. And I did get into it with a nurse, actually, who was just cold. I said, get, can you get someone else? And you can do that in the room. You could always ask for someone else. And you could also also leave a doctor if you don't feel happy with that doctor. Now, I'm going to ask you, Pamela, about that, what you posted on Instagram and what happened. And your diagnosis. Yeah, I, um, so I was recently diagnosed with immune thrombocytopenia. I had never heard of it in my life until I got diagnosed. It's an autoimmune condition. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, I it's, never heard of it either. Yeah, it's my immune system attacking my platelets, which, you know, platelets are really important for blood clotting. And so because they were so low, so the normal range for, you know, a healthy human is 150 and above, 150 to 450,000. I was at 13,000. So I was like lower than like 10% of the beginning of the range of where they should be. And so I was checked into the hospital. Um, I mostly, I had a great time because I was only there for one night. Um, but that's me also being really positive. And, you know, I feel like sometimes as a Mexican woman living in the U.S., Mexican-American woman living in the U.S., I just, I don't know if it's the cultural, like how I was raised or, but I just like, I'm a people pleaser. And I'm like, sometimes I'm scared to advocate for myself, even though I know I should. And also, you know, I probably have some some not medical trauma, but like mini trauma dealing with doctors. Cause I've actually had back pain for years and it's never really been diagnosed or treated. Um, I saw a bunch of doctors in New York, a doctor that didn't take insurance that ended up charging a bunch of money to do a bunch of tests. And then he was like, Oh no, these tests were for something else. They're not even to figure out your back pain. And I was like, why didn't you tell me that? I wouldn't have paid for this shit. Like it was like, what do you mean? He's trying to figure something else out that like, I wasn't even concerned about. And he wasn't transparent about that. And this was a neurologist that was highly recommended at NYU. So, you know, prestige sometimes doesn't mean <laughs> shit because you just never know. Um, so, yeah, get as many opinions as possible. Go to as many people as you can. Um, but what happened is in the story that you're referencing, um, a nurse who was just clearly had not had that much experience was trying to draw some blood and I had IVs in both arms. So she had to go to my hand. She was shaking. Like I should have just, I also have a blood clotting disorder. Like I should not have given her the benefit of the doubt. I should have said, Hey, I just, can you just not, can we wait for the people? Cause the people were like over, over staffed and they no, not understaffed the people that were supposed to come draw my blood. So they were like, Oh, it's going to be, you know, hours. And I was like, you know, I can wait hours. It's fine. I'm not, I'm at the hospital, you know? And so she tried like three times and she went here, she went here. Like I had bruises for like a week after that. Um, and then she had her friend try and her friend couldn't get it either. They both didn't know what they were doing. And I just thought like, if I'm calm and I, you know, offer mo like comfort, like she, she'll find my vein. It's like, no, dude, that's not for me. That's not my burden. <laughs> okay. Like a white man probably would have been like, oh, hell no. 
bring bring someone else in, right? Like, I don't know, maybe not all white men, but I, I wonder, you know, if I was not like a short <laughs> Latina, you know, five foot two woman, if I had, if I would have just felt like, no, this is probably not the person to do this. Um, so, you know, if I'm ever in the hospital again, I, I, at least I have some experience now. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a small example, I think, of sometimes how I, I can only speak to my experience, but how intimidated I am, I think, by the medical system, because it's so overwhelming and it's so difficult to get answers. And it just, it's cold, you know, it's a cold system and it's not really made for humans, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what Marina said about trauma errors, like once you hear you have a problem, then you're going into things with trauma errors. I think that what I do is I always suggest to people to do some research, take, you know, put a bunch of questions together. Uh, don't go in as your doctor, but just sort of try to understand a little bit of background between um, what's going on with your body. But also it's really important to try to get your friends, try to get your girl squad together. You know what I mean? Like as many people as you can that can come with you and be in that room. And then also your most important friend is your phone. You need to tape what's going on, the conversation that's going on between you and the doctor so that you can play it back. Because, and you tell them like, you know, like I'm not going to remember this, of course, and I will be calling you with questions. You have to understand that. And they and they should understand that. So, so yeah, so you're, you know, so to advocate for yourself is having your girl squad. And even if your girl squad can't be there, like sometimes I had people phone in. So they were on the phone. So Mark. it's a matter, you know, like, so you don't have to do it alone. Like, I just want everybody to know, like, this is not, you know, it, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be just your fight. You know, you, you have free people that love you. They will fight for you as well. Yes. And it's also like the, 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 they have to, they always have a new nurse who goes in, who hasn't done drawing blood. Okay. I had that happen before my MRI. Cause I get an MRI once a year. I request it because I have very dense breast tissue, which is very important. We, we have that on the episode that's out right now that we're, we're talking about like a lot of times mammograms don't show everything. So you have to get like an ultrasound uh, of image of your breast. Also 3D MRIs are very important. You should ask if they do that. You should request it if you can. No, not if you can't, just request it. But I remember going in for my MRI and the girl, she I didn't know she was nervous. I saw that she couldn't get it done. And she was on the second. And I said, I've never had any problem before. What's going on? And she was about to do it. I said, you ain't going to get another chance. <laughs> I said, that's it. And um, she was looked up me and I said, that's it. Get somebody else. And this other nurse came in and she says, what's the matter, Miss Franklin? I don't, I horrible at the Jamaican accent. But she came in, she did it like that. I go, well, what was her problem? She goes, I don't know what her problem was, but we got it done. And let me tell you, now when I go in, I ask them, are you new? Is this your first time? Because they do have to learn. My sister's a nurse. She's like, well, how else right. are they going to learn? I don't know. They ain't going to practice on me. So just know that they do. You, you've got to pay. And you're right, Pamela. Sometimes even I notice as a comedian, I always want to make people laugh or I want them to sort of like me. And when you go into the healthcare system, that relationship, you find that you're at a disadvantage in a way. Because they're not looking at you as someone that needs to make you, like, please you. Or they don't want, they don't care about being liked. They're getting a job done. So you really have to go in there armed, like Suzette said. I used to record all the doctors and I would find out afterwards a lot of the information I was not retaining. Afterwards, I would hear and i go, oh my God, I had asked them a question they had already answered, actually. 
because I was just listening with trauma ears. Now, your condition is actually very, it's interesting because because of COVID, we may see more of that even in children. It's called ITP immune. I can't say it. Can yeah, say it's, it it's weird. It's thrombocytopenia. It's almost like a Spanish N, like, N, like people say Nya instead of whatever, thrombocytopenia. Thrombocytopenia. Yeah. And it happens when the immune system attacks and destroys health platelets. This can also happen when someone has another autoimmune disease, like a viral infection, certain cancers due to certain medications. Um, there's some symptoms to look out for, like, um, you know, or if lupus can cause it too. Um, risk factors include family history, genetics, lifestyle habits, like drinking and smoking, medication, chemotherapy, blood thinners, radiation can do that, health conditions like having HIV and anemia. And it, at the end, it says, and being of the female sex, which I was like, what? <laughs> Is that written right? <laughs> It's like sometimes you read these articles and you're like, who wrote this? Mm-hmm. In children, it often develops after a viral infection. And this can happen whether the infection was mild or severe. For example, it could develop after chickenpox, the common cold, or COVID-19. So it's a very serious one to pay attention to. Um was there something that you noticed, like, right, like, was there a symptom that you had? It was just the bruising. I had bruises on my legs and arms and they just kept getting worse. And I was like, that's so weird. Like, obviously I was clearly knocking my, like, you know, I was knocking my body on stuff, but I was just more sensitive to, so I got bruises. And eventually one friend of mine made a joke, like, dude, what's going on? Like domestic abuse. Like I was like, whoa, like, I guess, I mean, that was a bad joke, but I was like, damn, if it looks that serious to you, I should probably talk to a doctor. So I met with a doctor, um, telehealth, love being able to meet with doctors, you know, just to be able to go get the blood work done. And they called me on like Sunday. I had just gone to the beach. I had a headache. I was dehydrated. And they were like, your platelets are really low. You need to go check yourself into the ER. And I was like, there's no way in hell I'm leaving my husband with my two kids on a Sunday night. Like, that's just not going to happen. So I went the next morning. I did go to the um, to the clinic, like the urgent care, and they ran the test again to make sure. And yes, they confirmed they were really low. And they advised me to go check myself in. But I was like, listen, like, realistically, I probably can't until tomorrow. And they were like, you really should go. But, you know, they they were like, you can go tomorrow. So I checked myself in the next day and I was only there for one night and they gave me a platelet infusion. What is it like an infusion or perfusion when they infusion, right? They put platelet. Yeah. And I had an allergic reaction, which could have been avoided because I heard the doctor say, give her Benadryl. And then when I asked the nurse, the nurse was like, no, no, no. I think, no, she didn't say anything. She said, no, 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 for sure. That's for another treatment that we might do later. It's not for this one. So again, I should have recorded the conversation. I should have recorded that doctor, you know, knew there, I liked them and I should have recorded it, but, um, or brought someone in by the way, I really enjoyed getting injected with Benadryl. (laughs) It was really fun. I had a great time. Um, but yeah, so that I was there for a day. I still don't have answers as to what causes. I think it might be COVID. Um, after COVID I did get shingles like a month later. Um, now I'm wondering if it's Botox. I got Botox over the summer. So now I'm like, that would be very, but we don't know, but I'm doing a bunch of stuff. I met with a hematologist out of Mexico, based in Mexico, because a friend recommended him. And he was like, they should t- check for all this stuff. I messaged my 
it's, she's actually the nurse practitioner because I like, I'm young. So I feel like I'm not high priority, especially since my levels are like, they're not at the ideal level, but they're a little bit lower. Like they're not where they should be, but they're not so low that they're even sending like steroids, which is what you usually would be um, prescribed. But the Mexican doctor was like, there's actually this medicine that's much better, less side effects. It's FDA approved, but doctors just aren't familiar with it and are not willing to prescribe it for what you have. So you should try to find a doctor that will prescribe it to you over there. So that's what I'm pursuing on the conventional side. And then I'm also doing some natural stuff. I'm trying to do a paleo diet, which I'm so confused about how I'm going to do this. Like I was already kind of healthy, like I was healthy-ish, but this is like a new level of figuring that out. I'm trying not to stress because stress is not good for the disease. So no. And I just hearing you talk about finding a Mexican doctor, you know, a lot of times I would go into, like, I went to see Catherine Joseph, but she's at the city hospital. City hospitals are challenging, but they have some of the best doctors there. And I would see the patients that spoke Spanish and I was like, oh my God, who advocates for them? Uh-huh. Yeah. They my go aunt in had and cancer. They're... And luckily she's in Miami where a lot of people speak Spanish, but not everybody does. So she, we, you know, we tried to have someone go with her whenever we could because it was tough. Yeah. I would see the patients by themselves, barely uh, by themselves. And I'm like, how, how are they hearing things? And, and, so yeah, and they just do things without explaining things to you. You know, they, they, she's like, she did not understand anything that was going on. It was like, they were just doing stuff and it's, it's yeah. Be difficult. Yeah, and This is the one place where being difficult will save your yes. life. And you know, what's great is these conversations. Like I just saw someone post recently that she's like, get an MRI done after 55 because mammograms are not always enough. And now you're repeating that. So like, you know, we we need that sisterhood because unfortunately our medical system, I mean, especially if you're not a white woman, but even if you're a white woman, it sucks. I mean, there's no research behind stuff that primarily applies to, you know, you, you just read that definition. It's true. Autoimmune disorders affect women disproportionately and there's no data on the causes or, you know, what can actually treat the cause. Like it's just all these steroids and stuff. That's just to treat the symptoms, which they don't really work very well. Like you might take a steroid, you know, take steroids and then your platelet levels are still going to be low. And then you just have all this other negative shit going on. So unfortunately I, you know, we need to, we, we need to basically support each other and spread information because system yes. isn't doing it for us. Now, after giving up on cancer vaccines, doctors start to find hope. Speaking of, they, now, see, we don't do enough. Suzette, you brought this up on a, on a podcast before where we were talking about, we don't do enough trials because as black women, as women of color, we're also, because we're so busy advocating for ourselves, we're also not willing to do the trials that are necessary for us. I don't know if we're not, not willing or invited. I mean, I don't think a lot of black people oh, know. I was asked... Okay. I was like, no, nah, I'm doing that trial. <laughs> there are efforts to create a cancer vaccine that would protect healthy people at high risk of cancer. Any malignant cells would be obliterated by the immune system and it would function like any other vaccine. The first vaccine involves people with a high chance of pancreatic cancer, one of the most difficult cancers to treat. And other vaccine studies involve people at high risk of colon and breast cancer. The research is still in its early phase and the efforts may fail. But animal data are encouraging as well as some preliminary studies. Now, it says, I really think we will see a few vaccines approved for clinic in the next five years. The first vaccine she predicts will be used to prevent recurrences 
in patients whose cancer was successfully treated. And I think that we will very rapidly move on to primary prevention, giving vaccines to healthy people at high risk. People may disagree about this, but the answer at this point is yes, it is possible to make vaccines to intercept cancer. What what do you think about that, Suzette? Uh, Well, the thing is like, it doesn't, the thing is like, okay, so after COVID, it's like, it's always going to be some doubters. And I mean, it's crazy. It's like, um, I mean, like I just, when, when I read the story, I actually just, my mind just automatically turned to I Am Legend. Do you know that movie? Where basically a scientist comes up with a groundbreaking miracle cancer vaccine. And then it, and then it turns people into like zombie vampires. And I was like, I was like, it, it was perfect. Like Will Smith was the lead in that, you know what I mean? And it's like, it was just perfect. It's like it, he he was like a scientist that was trying to cure cancer. And then it ends up like, you know, it leads him to be like the last human around to like slap around Chris Rock. I mean, I just think that like, you know, he was like slapping everybody in that film. But, you know, that film was a, that in that film, violence was acceptable. So um, but I just think that like these vaccines, I mean, like, you know, it's just I'm, I'm for any vaccine. I mean, I'm pro vaccine. It's just that like when stuff like this happens, it's going to be people that are going to be the doubters and, you know, the ones that are just not going to um, help the situation move forward. Um, I don't, you know, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm pro vaccine. I'm, you know, turn me into a zombie vampire. Um, (laughs) It's encouraging. It's always nice to hear of hope. I know my doctor is one of the ones leading the way in the Oncotype score where you can find out whether or not you do have to do chemotherapy treatment at a certain um, stage of cancer. So I do want to ask you this, Pamela. Now you have two little ones. They are so adorable. How are you balancing everything? I'm not. It's You've a, just gone it's through. A, like it's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a lot, but it's magical too. I mean, I think, and this whole disease stuff, I really feel like my body's really trying to tell me something. I'm glad it was diagnosed. You know, I think... I think, I think, um, Suzette, you mentioned something earlier also about like, I think it's also internal work. Like, it's not just about what I eat and what I, but it's also like learning how to deal with my stress and my anxiety and all this stuff when I have a lot going on and I have so many goals, you know, just learning to experience joy in the little moments and just be kind of at peace. And, you know, you can try to meditate and do all that stuff and that's good. But I think having that specific, like, I don't want to use the word goal because it sounds so like, I don't know, corporate or it's it's not the right word, but of like just loving yourself. Right. And um, I think as women, we grow up in a system that really doesn't teach us, teach us how to do that. So learning how to do that myself, I think has been wonderful. And, you know, I'm married. So it's, it's interesting to still do that work. Right. Once I have a partner, I have someone who loves me and like, I still don't fully know how to love myself. I've just started that journey. And so that's been really interesting um, as a mom too. And, you know, being aware twins, yeah, boy, girl, twins and seeing my daughter. And like, sometimes she has like short fat legs and she's so cute. And like, that has helped me love myself because I've always been insecure about, you know, my short legs. And now she, I mean, maybe she'll grow up and not have short legs, but right now they're just so cute and I love them so much. And to me, that is like just a a mirror for myself, right? Like of maybe all the love that I didn't get just growing up watching, you know, trash TV and seeing models, you know, on the covers of magazines, never having that body. And in Mexican culture is very vain. You know, I grew up with my grandma telling me like, you know, you're going to be a model, wear your heels, you know, like love my grandma to death. But 
I'm still working through a lot of that. Um, and now that I'm raising kids, I'm trying to be like as conscious as I can without, um, overthinking it and stressing myself out. So yeah, being a twin parent is really rewarding, but really difficult too. So now I'm going to squeeze in one more topic. So Pamela, you have a, a rental, is it a vacation home? And I, during the pandemic, I know Suzette, I live in a studio apartment. I've been trying to get that second home. It's not going to happen. It's not happening for a lot of people right now. I follow the stock market like an insane woman. But what are we going to do with this? You have a rental? How are you doing? Are people going Yes, there? people are. Um, August and September were slow. But um, I launched it basically beginning of June. June, July were great. Very well booked considering also I had no reviews. And now it's getting, it's, it's basically October is like almost fully booked. November is mostly booked, but I'm not able to charge the price that I was hoping to because like, I don't have reviews yet. I, you know, I don't have enough and I finally got super host status on Airbnb. So I hope that helps to like at least boost my listing up a little bit, but yeah, it's in Tennessee. So it's in this area that I actually hadn't heard of until I found out that it's great for vacation homes. And I probably heard about it a little late, like a lot of other people were getting in on it too. And now there's a lot of competition. And so like, there's a lot of things that has been challenging, but it, it's taught me a lot. And I finally got my feet wet in, you know, real estate investing, which is wonderful. There's also a lot of tax benefits to specifically doing short-term rentals. They are a pain to set up, but because they're such a pain to set up and they're so time intensive, I mean, once they're set up, they're not that time intensive, but they, you know, once a week, something goes wrong. You either have a guest who complains about everything, like, oh, there's a fly or, you know, there's legitimate issues. Like I think our dishwasher broke. Right. And so something, something's going on, but it's not crazy. It's just the setup that was and the financing. Um, but because it is so much work, there's a, there's a tax, situation that allows you to depreciate the asset way faster than like if you just buy a regular investment property for a long-term tenant. So you can basically get a lot of money back in the first year. If you do a cost, it's getting kind of technical, but if you do a cost segregation study, you can end up getting a lot of money back in taxes. Um, So I'm hoping that next year I'm able to claim that and can get most of my down, down, my part of the down payment back, which by the way, we, I was able to save quite a bit because I lived with my parents for like six months when the twins were little. So that was kind of a great privilege. Um, and I went in half with my dad. So my dad and I are the co-owners, but I run it. So that's why I'm going to get the tax benefit, not him. <laughs> so <laughs> Now, demand for vacation homes has fallen below the pre-pandemic baseline for the first time in two years, economic uncertainty and an increase in second home loan fees coupled with increasing home prices and mortgage rates have slowed sl- have slowed the pandemic-driven vacation home surge. A mortgage rate lock is an agreement between a home buyer and a lender that allows the buyer to lock an interest rate on mortgage for a fixed period. Now, you know, I've been paying attention. These interest rates are up. This serves as a protection from future interest rate increases which you got to pay attention to when you're buying that home, get that lock. Mortgage rate locks are down 4% from before the pandemic, which means they ain't giving it to people. So pay attention, which is from a revised rate of 3% above pre-pandemic levels a month prior and 70% above pre-pandemic levels a year earlier. So demand for second homes is declining due to higher home prices, mortgage rates that have risen to nearly 6%. Now, some say it was there before. 
Like this is not new, but who wants that? I don't. And a slumping stock market. These factors have also cooled the housing market. Another factor is that the federal government increased loan fees. Get this for second homes in April, adding roughly $13,500 to the cost of purchasing a $400,000 home, which is pretty. That's they the rose medium. in April. I yes. wonder if I ended up being a part. So I acquired my, the property end of April. So maybe, I don't know if I just missed it or not. I wonder. You probably just missed it, but that's an important number that I'm like, what the hell? Oh my God. I guess I have to just sell a show. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I want to thank you both so much for being a part of this very amazing episode that is going to actually save lives and help our youth and help people figure out how to vote and, you know, speak to their legislators and their senators and get involved any way you can. You're just both, you're just amazing women. So thank you so much. Suzette, tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, uh, you can find me at Strong Black Boobs on Instagram and uh, and uh, um, TikTok as well. And um, with friends like like friends like us, we turn your black girl magic into black boot magic because you shouldn't die just because your boobs are black. And we're happy to get the message out through friends like us. Yeah. <laughs> Turning a pity party into a titty party, yo. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and tell them about your 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 two Muppets. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, great. Or, yeah, these, or yeah. What are they called Muppets? Well, they're my booby po- well, they're called my little terror squad, my little titty terror squad. This is a uh, um big titty and this is a uh, little booby. And right now we're dressed as uh, spice boobs. Yeah, this is uh, ginger boob. This is baby boob. And I'm scary. And of course, um, sporty and uh, posh, they're off in another bra right now. And so they won't be around for a while. But uh, but yeah, so, you know, like, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Tell me what you want, what you really, what you want. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to do a monkey breast exam with you. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh my so, yeah, God. So I have so yeah, and then I have these two. I have Harriet and uh, Harriet and uh, and Rosa as well. Yeah, I've had more titties in the last two years than a lactating cocker spaniel. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank, Thank you. you so much. <laughs> and Pamela, it was so nice to reconnect with you too. Tell our listeners where they can find you. So y'all can find me. I don't, I never say y'all. I don't know why I just said y'all. At the Pam D. I was like, y'all. <laughs> you can find me at the Pam V on Instagram and TikTok and or bronxconnect.org for the organization. And with friends like us, we can do anything. If you have any health issue, tell all your people, like reach out to all your networks. You never know who's going to be able to help and try to see if you can join a community that's more naturally minded. I am very pro-science, very pro-vaccine, but also exploring some natural stuff. So just try to get in as many groups and resources as you can that are varied, that are, you know, not one dimensional. And we can do anything if we do it together. That's right. That's thank you. Marina Franklin here. Go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, you can bring strong women together who will help you to advocate for your life. Check, Check us out. out.